0: Between now and the end of June, we're conducting the 2024 Talking Health Tech Audience Survey. This helps us prioritise content, hone in key messages, and refine the show to make it even better. We also want to understand who the biggest cohorts of our audience are, so I'd love for you to take 5 or 10 minutes to have your say and complete the survey. Everyone who completes it goes in the draw to win a share of $1,000 worth of THT Plus membership credits to put towards a membership for yourself as an individual or to help get the word out about your company. The link to complete the survey is in the show notes of this episode or just go to talkinghealthtech.com survey.
1: Welcome Rebecca, so you were just on the stage, can you tell
2: me who you are and what you do? Yeah sure, Uh, so my name is Rebecca Maynell, Director of Health Workforce Strategy for the Victorian Department of Health. So my main role is looking at how we can build workforce capacity and capability across Victoria across both clinical and non-clinical roles. Amazing, there's quite a bit in there. So what were you talking about on the stage today? Well, one of the big priorities for the department is as we see a transition to more digitally enabled models of care, how can we equip the workforces of the future in terms of capacity and capability to meet changing models of care? Um, so, some of the things I was talking about was around how we can ensure future education models enable future workforces and our emerging clinicians to have skills around things like data privacy digital ethics, um, as well as understanding how data is captured, um, stored and also used to gain insights and inform clinical care. And making sure that we're building um, the trust of clinicians in the digital scaffolding, I guess, around some of those ethical um, considerations in using tech in healthcare uh, so that people can feel that they've got trust um, and that they're also empowered to engage with uh, new technologies and models of care. What's
1: the biggest challenge in building that trust in clinicians? So I'm an emergency nurse by trade, um, and then moving to the tech. So what are the challenges that you see in
2: bringing the clinicians along the journey? I think broadly speaking, my observation would be that a lot of people are really actually quite willing to engage with digital models of care. It's enabling more flexibility for workforces in terms of where and how they work. So enabling working from home, for example. I know we recently had a nurse practitioner um, seconded in our team who was doing some weekend shifts um, online for the virtual emergency department. And I think it's fantastic to see the ways in which digital is enabling Um, different types of work and and models of work for our workforces as well. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges is that as we roll out tech, we need to ensure that it's done not just from a process perspective. So often when we look at um, new systems, when when they're being rolled out at the health service level, we look at it in terms of how it can augment service delivery or how it can um, increase efficiency or how it can provide different models of care, but we don't think about our workforce preparedness um, and trust in the system that the, that we're rolling out. So we need to ensure that um, when we're procuring or designing new systems, that we're doing that with um, clinicians and frontline workers to ensure that it meets um, their needs in servicing uh, patients. Um, but also that we're designing that change management um, process and rollout with clinicians at forefront of mind. Yeah, cool. It's a big challenge and no doubt welcomed by a few i know
1: if i was able to do my clinical shifts from home virtually i'd say sign me
2: up yeah exactly it's i mean that's one of the most beautiful things about digital we talk about sometimes there um, can be cultural barriers or um, lockers to people wanting to adopt technology but i think there is huge scope to mm. increase flexibility and autonomy for our workforces um, through these virtually enabled models of care and some fascinating work going on across the sector around Um, enabling virtual care in the home home, uh, for pre- and post-operative care, for example, I think it's really exciting and a great opportunity for our workforces and our community. Yeah, absolutely,
1: especially, you know, when I look at the virtual space, I go, well, I can't do that as as a nurse because I still have to be on the floor doing that face-to-face patient care, whereas moving to that virtual space where it wouldn't change the model and change the way we do it. I mean, we obviously still need the face-to-face, but there's a, a wonderful space in between that we can start
2: servicing. Yeah, absolutely and I gives choice um, from that workforce perspective but also from the patient perspective mm. in terms of um, sometimes some people would prefer to receive um, care in the home obviously and also in terms of equity in um, in access to healthcare so increasing serviceability to really remote locations and those sorts of things so um, some really broader agendas that digital can help meet.
1: Yeah, amazing. So. Today, Victorian
2: Healthcare Week, if you had a couple of takeaways for our listeners at home, what would they be? Oh, cool. that's a really good question. I think the biggest thing from my perspective, um, representing the government, is understanding that we need to work together as a sector. There are so many players in healthcare um, for any one change, and, and that's one of the things I mentioned in my talk, was that uh, when we talk about digital enablement, it's not just a digital or a tech piece or, or a systems piece, and it's not just a people piece. There's often um, regulation and legislation that needs to be updated. Um, there's our employees that we need to keep in mind that we're um, that we're providing them with the right capabilities, and and so there's so many stakeholders across the system, and um, I just encourage people to. Um, build digital literacy as much as possible to contribute to the future vision of Victoria so that we can all work together um, as we shift towards a more digitally-enabled environment. Thank you for your time today. I hope you enjoy
1: the rest of Health Week. Thanks so much. Welcome, Cody. Hi. Can you tell me a little bit about who you are and what you do?
3: Yeah, so I'm Cody Johansson. I'm the Director of Technology for Healthy Nevada. And Healthy Nevada is an HIE that services the state of Nevada and the United States. And um, we basically share electronic data amongst different healthcare participating organizations within the state of Nevada in the uh, United States.
1: Amazing. And were you by chance talking about HIEs today on stage?
3: Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what I was talking about. I talked a little bit about just the setup of Healthcare Information Exchange, like what it is, uh, different governance models and data structures and how they can share and then different services that they provide you know one of the biggest services that most HIE provides is called event notifications that's uh, a a great tool that can be used to basically say oh John Smith just showed up at a hospital and we need to notify uh, you know provider Dr. Bone Crusher that he was seen at the hospital so that he knows to follow up with John Smith so um, talked about kind of different services that HIEs provide and then um, just talked about how HIEs can provide value to the communities that they serve.
1: Yeah, yeah amazing. Now, I, we were talking earlier that this is your first time in Australia. It is. You got yeah. to go and do the Great Barrier, the Great Ocean Road yesterday, yeah. mm-hmm. and we'll be up at the Great Barrier Reef in a, in a week or so. Mm-hmm. When you're looking at the, the health information exchange mm-hmm. and the platforms from the US to the Australian market, is there any big differences that you've noticed or?
3: Um, I would say that there are big differences but I would also say that they're not that big of a differences as well that you know in the United States there are a lot of siloed healthcare partners it's been very fragmented Um, you know there's there are some government programs and some government facilities and government hospitals and whatnot and it sounds like that's pretty similar to Australia but then there's also a lot of private organizations and private institutions and there's a lot of Um, competition amongst those and they all use different systems and those systems don't really talk to each other. So I think that there are a lot of the same problems, but um, even though it is a little different at times too, but I think most of it is is pretty similar. So yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, it's been wonderful to have you here at Victorian Healthcare Week. Yeah. If you had some takeaways you'd like to leave um, with our our listeners, um, what would you... What what couple do you have?
3: Yeah, I think, you know, the biggest one I think that I was trying to... The point that I think I tried to make is that incentives really do matter, you know, that if it's a fee-for-service-based system where people get paid based off of what they do, they're going to do more of something. If it's a value-based care system where they get paid for keeping somebody healthy, they're going to do whatever it takes to keep that person healthy. Uh, Healthcare information exchanges are usually more helpful for uh, the value-based care systems where they can try and reduce costs, reduce utilization because that data is shared and you can prevent a duplicative test or prevent something from happening. But there there are also use cases where they could provide for that fee-for-service organization where it says, oh, hey, John Smith just went to the hospital. He needs to be have a follow-up and needs to be seen. So I think that there are ways for that to work, but at the same time, Um, those incentives matter so based on what the incentive is people will work towards that and try to achieve that so um, you just kind of need to see where Healthcare Information Exchange meets those incentives and that's where Healthcare Information Exchange can can be used in the community.
1: Amazing, well thank you for your time today, I hope you enjoy your gallivant around Australia and you enjoy it.
3: Yeah, it's been great so far. We saw some really cool stuff at the Great Ocean Road. Saw some koalas and an echidna and a bunch of cool stuff and looking forward to see the rest of the all this beautiful country has to offer so
1: right, i wish i was going to see you after Cannes so i could yeah. find out how you find it, yeah. find the transition from yeah. from melbourne where we're quite cold at yeah. the moment so yeah. i traveled down from brisbane and i'm in my yeah. puffer jacket yeah. and you're going to north queensland where it's going to be quite tropical yeah
3: so. yeah i'm <laughs> excited difference. so brought some shorts too so hopefully Brilliant. be able to use them so
1: wonderful well enjoy your time
4: right. and thank you for today
3: yeah thanks for having me
4: welcome eleanor can you tell me a little bit about who you are and what you do So I'm the Clinical Operations Manager for Monash Health. I help run seven tertiary services and we have about 14 surgical specialties and 31 medical specialties. Wow, busy days. Busy. All right,
1: well, before we let you go back to the hospitals and back to work, what were you talking about on the stage today?
4: So I was presenting with Ken regarding digital health. So at Monash, we're big believers in digital health. We're hoping that it will transform our surgical program. And allows us to do a lot of work that we couldn't do if we were doing it based on paper and with people. So we believe that, you know, by making things easy with digital, it can improve patient outcomes at the end of day. Amazing.
1: And I'm sure there'll be a few clinicians that will, will love that. The sound of yep. not so much transcribing yep. Yep. and duplication.
4: Yeah, it's a lot more patient-focused too. So yep. patients get to... Take part in their journey, they get some more information, the clinicians get the information they need. Mm-hmm. But it also allows the patient to make a decision when they talk to us. Yeah, The world's changed a little bit since COVID, so patients don't have as much time to be available with work commitments and things like that. Mm-hmm. So we've noticed that a lot of them aren't available in the way they used to be. Mm. So the digital health allows them to complete the paperwork and complete the documents when they're able to do it and get it back to us so that we have a team that can go through it and focus the um, clinical need on the patients that really need it.
1: Yeah, and I imagine like from the patient perspective, we've come through COVID where you couldn't touch anything, yep. couldn't pick anything up, everything was so digitised that to sort of go back to the way we used to do things just doesn't seem to make sense to patients these days. They're like, I could have done this before I even hit the clinic or yeah. The
4: yeah. surgery. Yeah, are spot on. And I think COVID allowed us to make changes that would be silly to go back. Mm. So a lot of tel- telehealth in hospitals hasn't reverted back. So if we keep everything on paper, it's just going to take so much longer for a patient to be able to complete anything. Mm. Yep.
1: So today, Victorian Healthcare Week, what takeaways would you like to leave with our listeners that weren't here or with those that
4: were? That It seems really complicated, but it's not. So I think we as a leadership team at Monash in the surgical program all had the same vision that we needed to do something different in order to service patients. So everyone seems feels the concept is really daunting but once you start it actually the patients invest in it and it's actually a lot easier to do than everyone thinks it is and then you can just keep building from it. So it's just that first step yep. and then let's keep going. Yep. Sky's the limit. That's
1: it. Amazing. Well, Eleanor, thank you so much for your time today. I know you've got a busy day ahead of you, so I'll let you get along, but thank you. No worries, thank you.
5: Hey everyone, I'm Graham Greve. I'm a product lead for HL7 International for Fire, which is a pretty widely known healthcare technical standard.
1: Amazing. And you spent some time on the stage today. Can you tell me a little bit about what you spoke about?
5: I did. I was telling the community audience about Sparks, which is a new initiative led by the Commonwealth Government to create digital health standards for fire here in Australia. And from my point of view, it's great. We finally have a process for reducing digital health standards in Australia, which we have not had for many years.
4: And
1: this is something you've been passionate about for a very long time.
5: I have, yeah. I've chosen to spend my life developing standards for healthcare in order to lead to better outcomes in healthcare. I mean, I focus on digital health standards, but the digital standards are just tools to create better outcomes in health. And it's been a great frustration for me that we had no process here in Australia. So I'm really glad that we all have we all have ambitions for health and we totally know that we need digital health to transform the system to deal with like looming demographic crises. No, I can't call it a looming crisis anymore, can I? We're in it now, right? And what are we doing? So finally, we have a process, and that's what I was telling people about. I'm really, I'm excited about that.
1: Yeah, amazing. So, uh, I'm gonna give this a crack. If anyone wanted to accelerate the Spark to start a fire, how will they go about it?
5: Get involved. Um, So search for Spark, there's links on the HL7 Australia website for how to get involved. But really, it's about, there's no price, there's no, like, organisational agreements to sign. You just spend your time watching the discussions, which happen on GitHub discussions, uh, participating in the teleconferences, uh, which are weekly, or going to the actual face-to-face meetings. And you can be a clinical user and is just interested in, why does digital, Why don't the digital health centres do X? I want X, and so go and advocate for those. Or you can be a technical user who says, we're going to do X, but how? How do we, how do we make that happen? Both of those are critical functions, And what I've learned through being involved in the standards is there's no magic. If you aren't at the table advocating for something, someone else will be at the table advocating for something else, and that's what will happen. All right. So so get involved.
1: So get involved. Get involved. And uh, key message.
5: Key message for me is we're in the crisis. We no longer say it's coming. We're we're in it. And healthcare is increasingly a parlous provision Everybody tells me that we don't have enough doctors, we don't have enough nurses, we don't have enough administrators, we don't have enough IT people. The only thing we've got enough of is patients. And what are we going to do about it? The only idea I've ever heard anywhere for us to do about it is digital health transformation. So let's get to and actually build infrastructure that makes that happen. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to do anything and things will just get worse.
1: All well Graham, thank you for your time today.
5: Thank Enjoy you very much. The rest
1: of Victorian Healthcare Week.
6: Thank
5: cool. you very much. Well, you see you
1: somewhere else. Can
6: you please tell me a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. So my name is Zilara Allen. I'm the Chief Executive Officer of Borough District Health Service. Um, I've been in that role for three years, and I'm a proud registered nurse. I've lived and worked in our town for the last sixteen years um, in lots of different roles, and. The health service provides um, everything I like to say from birth to death and everything in between. We're a multi-campus facility providing aged care, acute services and community health as well.
1: Oh, wonderful. Well, I'm a fellow nurse, so nice to chat to a fellow nurse. Can you tell me what you spoke, to, spoke about on the panel today? Sure, we were talking
6: about um, the importance of digitisation, interoperability and the challenges that exist currently within both the hospital service but also out in our um, integrated healthcare as well. So mm. really what does it mean from a, a patient consumer-led model um, and ownership of that data, and how do we make the system easier for really that ownership and the data transparency and information to travel with the consumer along that journey? Because we know across the state, um, everyone's got different systems, everyone's got different at uh, different stages of digitization, mm-hmm. You know, it's EMR, we're still on paper. Um, yep. So there's you know there's variabilities across the sector. That mean we've all got different ways of operating, and. From a patient perspective they don't get the same experience everywhere
1: they go. No, certainly some differences in that. So what are the what are the lessons and the insights that you gained from the from the panel or that you brought to the panel? I think it was important to highlight the difference between what happens in rural regional
6: versus what does happen in metropolitan systems, because they are significantly different the fact that there's a real energy that people want this all to happen, that we do or we're all kind of committed to the same the same goal that actually the person who's actually at the center of it is the owner of their own information and that how that information shared is really, really important. Having the same language and being able to describe it to people is really important. I know in our um, community, we've got low levels of literacy. So how do we make that information about, you know, um, data sharing and those types of things so they understand it but also not just understand it but trust it and so they want to engage in it. because we know if we don't have trust and we're going to engage so um yeah really having that shared commitment and understanding that we all need to be speaking the same language maybe on different levels but yeah that same language across the, across
1: the sector what is the like the the challenge i did a lot of nursing rural and remote so i understand those small communities and some of the challenges yeah. that, are, that are in that in, in towns that are six hundred yep. um, people are smaller. What do you think is the main point of difference that is that needs to be highlighted between like a regional and then metropolitan? Yeah, I think for me it's access. Um,
6: and I, there's a lot of times spoken about. Um, you know, patients being getting the treatment in the right place mm-hmm. in the right times so for example you know we know urgent care centres and eds are clogged yep and often with people who can't access gp appointments so they default and find different ways to navigate the system but then also the further out you get and the smaller your population's and two of our campuses have got in areas where we've got less than a thousand people in those areas, and they have a GP one day a week. Yeah, so it's you know there's there's inequities within the system. So how do we ensure that you've got connectivity, which means people can access it from home, um, but then enabling you know, the challenges of cost of living, and internet, all of those kind of. Competing priorities that people will make your decision either to engage or not engage. So, it does. The further you get out, the more complex I think it gets mm. in that there's there's far more leaders that people need to pull to try and navigate the system. Yeah, cleverly. Yeah, which is hard.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot. There's there's lots of different moving parts in it, and I, I think we sort of the further out we go, it does as you say, it gets more complex, and it's not a one size fits all approach. We can't, and I think too sometimes, and no disrespect to um, the
6: larger metros, I worked in metro through um, sure a good period of my, my career. There's, a, there's not an awareness of what happens outside of metropolitan mm, yeah. and, and the capabilities and capacity that exists. I know you've spoken about working in rural and, you know, remote communities. Actually, you become a jack-of-all-trades. Mm. You, you become really good at a lot of things. Yep. You become very resourceful. You do, and you find different ways to do different things. So I think they're, you know... Just having that appreciation of, of, of what it means to work in a rural and the impact you can have on rural regional communities.
1: certainly a very rewarding space to, to work in as a clinician um, and it definitely has its challenges in making it equitable and accessible to, to those that live in those areas. From the Victorian Health Week and what you've spoken about today, well, what would be the biggest takeaway you'd like for our audience and our listeners? I think to take away that there is a shared commitment, that we are all invested
6: in trying to um, find a solution to what is we all talking about, it's a pretty wicked problem, to really keep Pushing the message with um, policymakers, actually, that we all want to come together and collaborate, not compete, which is yeah, what we're all trying to do, um, to try and get the best solution, whatever that looks like. And we're all—I think that's for me the biggest message—that whether you're rural, regional,
1: remote, metropolitan, everyone's in it together, and there is a collective to make it work. Yep. amazing. Well challenges ahead thank you so much for sharing your insights on the stage and with me Thanks for having and it. enjoy the rest of the conference thank you very much welcome can you tell me a little bit about who you are and what you do
7: yeah I'm Tim Bowles I'm a ICU consultant at Royal Perth Hospital in Western Australia um, I've been asked to come to the conference today to talk about uh, our program in Royal Perth Hospital and East Metropolitan Health the, the Hive which is our it's our response to how to monitor patients continuously on the road. So we've combined continuous monitoring of ward patients with a AI dashboard to assist clinicians to see early changes in patients, and then combined that with the telehealth solutions so those clinicians can then intervene and help with those patients. And then behind all of that is a whole data innovation program with machine learning throughout the hospital, trying to assist the patient's whole journey from really presentation to the emergency departments through to community care. That clinic.
1: sounds like there's quite a bit in there. So you're speaking at Victorian Healthcare Week, here we are, what are, what are you gonna be talking about?
7: Well, I'm gonna be telling um, the audience how, um, firstly, how we've actually innovated in this way, how, um, what the barriers we've had to introducing continuous monitoring to the ward, but also what that really adds to Standard ward monitoring and how we can use the combination of continuous monitoring, which has been around for a while, telehealth, which has been around for a while, but then add in the modern and the, the sort of cutting edge AI and machine learning to help a clinician use those things across a very wide number of patients. Um, and so, really, allow one clinician to be influencing the care on larger groups of patients that would normally be better.
1: Okay, so if I'm the, I'm the nurse looking after this group of patients on this ward and you're the clinician that I'm feeding everything back to, what, what does it look like?
7: Well for you, you basically look after the patient as normal. So what will happen is, is when the patient, so the hive, the service is called the Hive. Mm-hmm. So when you want to enrol the patient in the Hive, what you'll do is put the patient in the bed. this monitoring that you apply, so all of our nurses have been trained to apply that monitoring. And then we have in every bed space a button that that nurse can press. Um, which activates the video system and then they can talk to me or one of the nurses working with me You can tell me about your patient um, and That may just be this patient's just generally a bit more unwell than we're happy with or it may be something that Specifically you're looking for or the medical team involved in the patient are looking for that we can help with and that may be If this happens, we're going to give this medication or we're worried about these kinds of changes then if I then I'll enroll that patient in our system, then we as a team will watch out for those changes or if see any other change that might happen and then let the bedside staff know if we see those kinds of problems. Yeah, amazing. Um, and so that's involving, I and mean, then like you, you'll just carry on with your normal work from yeah. then on and hopefully a lot of our patients then are fine, because most of our patients are fine, but then if we do see something that's worrying, we can give you a call and let you know maybe this patient needs a medical routine so I can ring the medical team and, and help out with that.
1: So it's a little more proactive and a, and a better overview of looking at a patient rather than the continuous monitoring of the machine that beeps, yeah. and always always beeps. And then I've got to run back and see what it is. Can I see it in real time? You
5: as can
7: well? see. It, you can see it real time. You can see the monitor. It's into there yep. as well. Um, We know that when we apply continuous monitors to patients, we see a lot of physiological changes that just aren't seen with your conventional four-hourly monitoring. So, for instance, we know if we put a continuous SATs monitor on a patient, um, we'll see deep and prolonged periods of hypoxia that just aren't seen by four-hourly monitoring. The problem is that when we've Done trials of that. Um, it's been very hard to show that knowing that information actually changes patient outcome. And the reason for that is that the bedside staff will get so much in the way of noise from it, so many false alarms, that then they don't notice the true alarm, mm. they get alarm fatigue. So so what we're adding is we're saying the primary responsibility for monitoring those alarms comes away from you, comes to us. Mm-hmm. You're still there if there's a red alarm at the patient's bedside, you're expected to attend to that. Yeah but hopefully a lot of the noise will be taken away and we can ring and say, actually there's been alarms all morning, but this one I think actually you do need to do something about.
1: And you're able to sort of monitor that trend at a really high level. Yeah. And then allow the nurse to get on with that patient care. Absolutely. Yeah.
7: So what I'll be seeing is we've got um, 55 beds at the moment. Yep. So I could see we normally have not the beds are in fixed locations, so there might be other patients in the beds, not not the ones we're actually. Watching. So we've normally got around 30 to 35 patients that we're monitoring. So I can see a mirror of all those monitors, but obviously you can't you can't really interact with that. So we've also got a dashboard which will show us if there's changes in the trends, highlight someone, looking at more than one physiological parameter so we can hopefully see someone changing before before they change, so changing um, before they deteriorate.
1: Yeah, amazing. So, yeah, recognising the the deteriorating patient much sooner. That's the plan. Yeah, amazing. Mm -hmm. And are you finding that that that's where the, the shift's going? Like that's what you're now learning with these 55 beds?
7: Yeah, look, it's it's really difficult. We we implemented it during COVID. So as a as a clinician, as a scientist, I would much rather have introduced it in a way where we were doing it as a trial. Um, essentially, we brought it in as a response to the question: if COVID overwhelms our intensive care unit, how do we support the wards? So we just brought it in. Mm-hmm. We now need to really take a step back and think, okay, how is this actually changing patients' outcomes? Because the problem is, we're putting the sickest patients on the system. So we expect those patients to have longer legs to stay and worse outcomes. It's really difficult then to quantify the difference we make. We've done some work with um, accountants and actuarial um, assessment of what we do. And the best guests were probably saving about 300 ICU bed days per year in Rob Pan's uh-huh. Hospital. Um, and something along the lines of 2,000 hospital bed days. Um, that's just looking at the whole population. So I can't tell you exactly what it is that we're doing that's yeah. making that difference. But I'm hoping that what we're doing is seeing things changing early, intervening today rather than tomorrow and preventing those either ICU admissions or deterioration so I mean you need yep. to stay in hospital for longer.
1: Wow. And then what's the value, like the dollar value on those three hundred dollar the three hundred beds?
7: Uh three hundred ICU but head? I don't have that but I think the I think it's about one wage stat shift unit per day per ICU bed. So you're talking about three hundred wows or so a year. So yep. I think at the national equivalent that's about what's well, about five thousand dollars a wow, isn't it? I think. It's outside my... Uh, outside it's uh,
1: above my pay grade, that yeah. one.
7: <laughs> um, but, but certainly, the, it, it's really hard because obviously we don't actually close that intensive care Yeah. so it's, it's unrealised savings at the very least. So yeah. yes, we haven't put a patient in that bed, we haven't spent that money on that patient but the way I say to people is that what we're doing is an opportunity savings. Mm. So and
1: it's still building capacity in, in the ICU, is
7: it? Absolutely. We admit someone else into yes. So, someone else who otherwise would have had their elective surgery cancelled mm. or would have been stuck in the emergency department for 12 hours, we can get them into the intensive care earlier. And equally with the, the longer, with the shorter ward length of stay, again, we're not closing ward beds but hopefully we're improving access. We're letting people come in for their elective surgery. We're letting people come out of the emergency departments earlier and, and just smoothing the flow through the whole system. So that's why it's really hard to put a dollar value on mm. because yeah, like I said, we're not advocating for yeah. closing beds. Yeah. That's, that's not what we're trying to do.
1: Yes, yeah. but building capacity in a, in a system that can be particularly stretched as, as we've seen, the risk yeah. of it with COVID was very real and we, we were being...
7: Just day-to-day huh? life at the moment. I don't know if it's the same in Victoria, but certainly so in West Australia, the health service is under pressure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's everywhere.
1: Yep. As a concern, it's definitely. Okay. I think we're under pressure everywhere. Yeah. Um, so from your, your time down here in Victoria and Victorian healthcare week, what is the key message that you'd like to get to our listeners?
0: The Talking Health Tech podcast has evolved a lot over the years all based on audience feedback. Now I need your help, yes you, to shape the future of this show. Between now and the end of June, we're running our biggest campaign to date in order to understand what makes the global healthcare ecosystem tick. Last time we ran our Talking Health Tech audience survey, we learnt 40% of our audience are clinicians, 77% of our audience tune in for professional development and market awareness, 8% of people listen to Talking Health Tech for competitor profiling, and only 2% of people listen to the podcast to fall asleep. And this time around, I can't wait to find out about your preferences for audio versus video content, which topics we should dive into more, preferences for hosts and formats and geographical reach and so much more. And don't worry, we'll be sharing all the insights once all the responses are collected as well. So if you're a supporter of Talking Health Tech and you can spare five or ten minutes, please complete our 2024 audience survey. And to say thanks for your input, everyone who completes the survey goes into the draw to win a share of $1,000 worth of credits towards THT Plus membership. Go to talkinghealthtech.com slash survey or the links in the show notes of this episode as well.
7: I think my key message would be firstly that... I and the rest of the team I work with are here. We're interested in working with other people, both people who are interested in implementing something similar in their own jurisdiction, people who are interested in doing research. Um, We have an amazing opportunity with continuous monitoring to research some of the physiology that goes on with deterioration um, and development systems to predict deterioration. I'd be very interested to hear from anyone who's interested in that kind of work and um, would like to work with us.
1: Yeah, amazing. We'll definitely put some information in the show notes. Thank you. Thank you for your time today, Tim. It's been lovely chatting. Thanks very much. Well, welcome. Can you tell me a little bit about who you are
8: and what you do? Uh, Sophie, my name's Amy McKim and I'm the Chief Digital Health Officer at Alfred Health. And that means I do a variety of things. But predominantly, I manage our IT team, our clinical information systems team, progressively more and more doing work in cyber and um, some biomedical devices. But I get to work with amazing people every day looking at how we can improve how we treat our patients. Brilliant. And what were you presenting on today? Well, I was presenting on how we're involving patients in that design and really looking at um, what does a patient engagement strategy look like in digital health. Mm. and the opportunities that we have to learn from our patients, to listen to our patients and really work with them on our new technologies we're introducing but also looking at some of the
1: simple stuff we do that we could do better. All right, and what's some of the simple stuff? Uh, Well, I
8: told a story today, um, Sophie, about one of the projects I worked on last year that was an amazing project where we had one of our um, husbands of a patient who'd unfortunately passed away at Alfred Health he contacted us um, a bit over a year ago about his experience. And he described that it was COVID, we were in lockdown. He was unable to come and see his wife who was in our intensive care unit for four weeks. He lived in a Hobart, he couldn't even leave the state. And he was amazingly appreciative of the care he received and his wife received with us. But he said our whole music was dreadful. And he would be on the phone waiting to talk to his wife and he wouldn't know if that was the last time he'd speak to her. And he had to listen to this horrendous music. And what was even worse was that music was then the same music he might hold here for holding on when he was... A year later when he was trying to pay his utility bill. Oh, how awful. book a ticket. And it would just take him back to that place. And so he contacted us and I went, oh my God, I can't believe we haven't seen, heard this before. Mm. And um, it's sparked a whole fantastic journey with him and with a number of amazing people to actually create a piece of music called Portrait of Roe, which um, is dedicated to Roe, his wife, and is only able to be used by the Alfred and our whole music, so... You won't hear it anywhere else. You won't be on any other phone call where you hear it. And we got amazing feedback when we launched this from, you know, on social media where some people then said, well, I'm going to phone it just so I hear the music that I heard when I had a loved one in hospital. And it was a connection point. Um, And so that's been a fantastic journey. We've had a a composer, Jess, who was just an incredible Musicians that um, gladly helped us out and have created this beautiful piece. And it was really a story of one individual's experience that is so universal to all of us and a place we could really make a difference.
1: Yeah, and starting simple can really be transformational.
8: Absolutely, and also, you know, often in digital health, we talk about change and how sometimes hard it can be, or, you know, trying to get buy in. And if you've got a patient voice, that disappears. You immediately connect with the staff that you want to work with.
3: Mm.
8: They understand what you're talking about. They understand the value of it, and you can really help with some of that innovation you do. So I think that was one sort of story, but the way we structurally have um, patient groups that we consult, and being able to tell people that the consumer's feedback was really cuts down on a lot of that change effort and yeah. really getting buy-in to what you're doing and what you're trying to work on
1: yeah and the consumer can really see that they, they are being heard and listened and there are changes are being made and implemented absolutely and you have to do that because if you
8: don't and if you don't respect what they're saying then um they will they will disengage mm, from you lose them on the journey don't exactly But they're also pretty realistic. So what my experience has been is if we say to them, look, we've heard what you've said, we tried this or we looked at that, but it's just not technically possible. Mm. What do we say to our staff? Hard-coded, can't be done. They actually understand as well. And so as long as you're sort of talking to them as you go through that, then you can really build up a fantastic relationship with your consumer and patient groups.
1: Amazing. So if we wanted to hear this beautiful piece of music that was a, a very... A simple and, I guess, a, a wonderful example of listening to the consumer. Yeah. Do we just phone the hospital? Well, we'd prefer you don't phone our switchboard.
8: <laughs> um, so you can actually Google it. Go Portrait of row, and look up ABC Classic, and they have um, the feature of that music on there, and you can find the story there as well.
1: Oh, wonderful. Amy thank you it's a really lovely story if, I mean, I mean, one more question like, what would be your key message to our, to our audience
8: I think my key message is there is nothing more powerful than a patient voice yeah. and if you can show and hear that you will see things you didn't see hear things you didn't know about and you'll also then be able to change things that you might never have thought was possible
1: yeah beautiful I love that it's a great message and a wonderful message to finish the first day of Victorian Healthcare Week. Thanks Sophie, great to talk to you. Can you introduce yourself and tell me who you are and what you do? Yep,
9: Uh, my name is Brett Chambers, I'm the Director of Virtual Pharmacy in Western New South Wales Local Health District Uh, and we provide pharmacy services to 30 rural and remote hospitals in Western New South Wales.
1: Wow. It's um, a big area to cover?
9: It's really big, it's about the same size as the United Kingdom. Yep. So we've got huge geographical areas to cover. Uh, I got the opportunity to drive out to Lightning Ridge earlier in the year. Yeah, buy, com- buy an opal country? No, I did not. <laughs> I did not. But, um, you know, there's some amazing um, geography, uh, amazing places to visit in our region um, and lots of things to see and do. So.
1: Yeah, brilliant. Well, you were on a stage. You closed out the final session on the digital health stage today. What were you talking about?
9: So I was talking about our virtual pharmacy program. Um, we've got uh, six-and-a-half pharmacists providing clinical care to inpatients um, at our rural and remote hospitals uh, for pharmacy. So uh, we'll see patients on admission and do their me- medicine histories. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll follow them through their admission and then we'll um, provide them education and a medicine list uh, when they're ready to go home. Yeah, but, uh, you yeah, know, along with that, we support the doctors and nursing staff uh, uh, with medicine management while patients are in the hospital.
1: Yeah. What are some of the biggest challenges delivering like pharmacy services in remote locations
9: yeah yeah well some of these services are really small Mm. and so if the nursing staff are all busy with an acutely unwell patient sometimes there's no one answering the phone so uh sometimes we'll know like we'll ring the admin person on the front desk and say what's happening today and they say oh they're all in ed with a sick Mm. patient so um sometimes it's the availability of staff on the ground um Sometimes it's the availability of medical staff. You know, we've got a medical model where the doctor at the hospital is also the general practitioner in town, Mm -hmm. so they might not always be available at the hospital. But uh, in terms of the technology, that's not a limiting factor at all. The technology is the enabler. Um, It's really, in a lot of ways, like you're at the bedside with a patient. Um, And I've had a number of patients actually say that to me, like, I haven't done a telehealth thing before, but it was just like you were here in the room.
1: Yeah, brilliant. I imagine that makes a, a big change. I used to do um, a lot of work, rural and remote, as a, as a nurse, and we'd have the you know, nurse-trained pharmacist, and you'd have the whole pharmacy to work out, and then you've got to take all of the information with the patient and work with the doctor to then formulate that and make sure you're sending the patient home on the right medication. And um, you know out, out there, you wear many hats,
5: mm-hmm.
1: and this service sort of takes away the risk and provides more time to do other other roles.
9: It certainly does. And I think uh, very early on or after a bit of time working with us, the doctors and nursing staff know that. Yeah. And uh, increasingly we'll see pharmacy review, please. Yes. Um, Because medicines are complicated and we're seeing uh, patients with more comorbidities Mm. and more medications. Um, And also I, I think we're seeing patients that have extended stays in hospital. Um, and they certainly do need a, a lot of uh, attention and advice and assistance with medications, particularly when it comes to discharge.
1: Yeah, yeah. The pharmacist is uh, the wizard of forever going back to the pharmacist being like, can you come and help me with this? Or does this make sense? So I think it's wonderful that you're able to sort of do that outreach and, and reach those, those areas that are geographically challenged. But what is the key takeaway that you'd like to leave with the audience?
9: I, I think that... Um Having a digital platform really opens up these opportunities um, to deliver healthcare in innovative ways. Mm. And um, you can think outside the box, you you can innovate, you can uh, agitate for change. uh, And that's really what we did in this instance. We we went from uh, a paper record and four small hospitals um, through this massive transformational journey where we've now got 30 hospitals and a district-wide pharmacy service. Yeah, so from small things, big things grow.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's wonderful to hear and it's um, it's great to see that breadth of the scope of the service that you're offering and and here presenting so we can all learn and, and take that back to where we, we work as well. So thank you. All right, thank you. Welcome John. Can you tell me who you are and what you do?
10: Yeah, so I'm John. I uh, work at Water, which is Health New Zealand so um, I was saying to you earlier we've gone from 20 autonomous kind of organisations to one kind of overnight and that's about 18 months ago now yep. and so we're just getting to the point where we think we realise who everybody is and that we're all in the same organisation um, so I uh, am in charge of uh, innovation with technology in Water. and uh, my job runs the gamut from uh, genomics through to AI, through to consumer applications with technology and medical devices. So I know l- little bits about lots of things, but not a lot about a lot, you know. So That's great. So we'll call you Jack. Yeah, of all trades. Yeah, nice, nice, yep. nice thought. Yeah, yeah.
1: throw that in there. Yeah, no, good. Um, all right, so then you're on a stage, speaking of Victorian Healthcare Week, what yep. are you going to talk to us about?
10: Here, talking to you about AI. Um, one of the interesting things for us is, uh, firstly, how available it is, you know, um, I'll talk about uh, ChatGPT basically breaking through the public consciousness, fastest mm-hmm. fastest tech application to 100 million uh, monthly active users ever, faster than TikTok, uh, and um, kind of the problems that we face as a health system when that's available on the internet. Um, As a health system, um, we're generally conservative, we look for evidence for things. Um, And then kind of how tech kind of gets in the way sometimes. So I went and saw a a health provider yesterday who showed me a bunch of numbers, Um, and when we started to talk about the actions that come off the back of those numbers, the whole conversation kind of fell apart a bit, and they pointed at the numbers and said, but we've got the numbers, and I said, if you're not doing something with the numbers, why have you got the numbers? And so that to me is kind of one of the critical things that we should be looking at as a health system and in Australia too, you know. What are we doing with these numbers we produce out of AI? What are we doing with these annotated images? You can do a lot with them. And how do you go from kind of a a low-risk testing model through through to a full clinical trial or through to kind of production use? How do you kind of slowly escalate that as you get trust? And how does that contrast with going on the internet using ChatGPT and doing whatever the hell you want? That, to me, is the fascinating thing about AI is it's available to everybody, and yet as a health system, we're still trying to figure out how to use it. So talk about that. All That's right. That's what I'm going to talk about.
1: Great. And if you have a silver bullet to answer <laughs> all of that... Oh, yeah. And um, to solve that, what what would it look like?
10: Um, so we've got a four-point plan, <laughs> Yeah, which I'll talk about later. Um, you know, first one's the people. Like, how are we growing our people so that they understand both the opportunity and the obligations that come with stuff like AI. So um, we're doing, um, while I'm here, my colleague Robin Whittaker, she's professor at Auckland University. She's the chair of our expert advisory group. She's in Canterbury and Christchurch training kind of our next uh, next set of uh, Digital Academy graduates. Um, So people's really important, process is really important. So we've got a a pretty robust process where we um, evaluate the development of AI So how are you going to build it? Mm -hmm. And then we do an algorithm impact assessment when we want to turn it on. So both uh, are you building something that's useful and then have you built something that's safe? So asking those two questions. The third thing um, is having the right tools. So um, this is not something you run on your laptop at home. We've got examples of people trying to do this sort of thing on a laptop and burning them out. So we've got a, a secure set of infrastructure which runs in AWS and allow Databricks, which allows us to build models in a collaborative way using notebooks, common for data scientists. That allows us to be able to share both the code and the process um, and and have our data used in a secure way. So historically, a lot of this has been, oh, we'll give you a copy of our data and we'll give them a copy of our data. And really all that is, is us protecting it with a contract. Mm. Um, This is bring people in so that when we see them do their work, it's not so that we can take their work, but when we see them do their work, we can then be satisfied that they're doing a good job, kind of speed up the process. Something uh, something that the UK is looking to do more of, uh, the concepts they use is a trusted research environment. So come in and do the research in our environment, which um, that's number, two, uh, number three. And the last one um, is governance. So talk a little bit about this, um, talk about the if it's on the internet, can we just use it question. Um, Something else um, that we struggle a lot with in terms of our conversations is whether um, how much better does the AI have to be than what we currently do? So I was involved with e-referrals 15 years ago now. We had a great conversation about turning uh, turning on e-referrals until it come, came to a conversation about, oh, we need to take the server down on a Sunday morning at 2, two o'clock in the morning in order to do updates and, and restart it and all of this stuff, at which point, the person in charge of the referrals went, whoa, 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 what happens if a referral comes in during that time? So the answer was, well, we can't help it. You know, If we don't update it, it doesn't get security updates, You know, it might fall over during the week. Um, and then I asked the question, what do you do on the weekends when the fax machines run out of paper? And it hadn't occurred to them that that was a problem statement that they had to deal with. So you know, this question of, does AI need to be perfect or does it just need to be better than what we do at well, the moment? And you might be surprised, even in that example, we kind of sometimes don't know how well we're doing at the moment. So that's a big conversation we have. How much better does the AI need to be? Does it just need to be as good? And that's a that's a good conversation. And the last conversation is um, we have a lot of data in healthcare, and we're being asked by private companies on a regular basis to use our data in order to build models. And there's this question: We you know we're a government-funded agency. Um, how do we do best by uh, the population, that funder, the taxpayer, and and in that, how do we how do we make sure that we're kind of following the wishes of the country? Um, the term we use in general is social license. So, do we have the social license for this? And so, we're working through that with a number of companies. Last thing we kind of want is we give them the data, they build us a model, and then they sell it back to us. Kind of feels a bit um, over the top. So, a bit of negotiating going on, and we'll look for. Opportunities where we'll build it ourselves or where we get a free license to use it, um, and their business model has to be salad it overseas. so yep. that's kind of how we're um, working through this, but you know at the end of the day the fascinating thing for me is not so much what we' at now um, where I think I think we're just under come out of that trough of despair mm. um, in terms of you know new technology. question I have is when you start adding these models together, what can they do so um, had things like Siri for a while who can respond to you but aren't very smart. Mm. What happens if you plug different models into Siri? So you plug ChatGPT into Siri to answer the questions. You plug Wolfram Alpha into Siri to um, do maths, answer maths questions. You plug a machine vision algorithm into the back to identify things. You plug, you know, a Gen AI that does, that generates images. Into the back of it so that you've got a you know you've got a voice assistant but they're more than that now they can do all of these different tasks that to me is when things start to get really interesting you've got kind of this semi-autonomous assistant that can go off and do things go and book me my hotel you know what i like you're my assistant can you help me that to me is kind of when this stuff starts to get really interesting and you know there are a few companies on the radar either about to launch or launching early next year mostly out of the US of course um, Humane would be a good example where that's what they that's what they're looking for is how do we get the interface away and make the interface just a conversation
1: yeah the next challenge yeah exciting to see where that goes and what they can do for healthcare and, and how we sort of deliver in, in New Zealand down here in Australia
10: yeah certainly
1: so what would be your key message then to our listeners?
10: Firstly, spend time understanding this. This is going to affect you as a person as much as you at work. So spend some time just reading some basics. Hey, what are the problems with these things? What are the opportunities with them? And then start thinking about how it might affect your work. You know, like, what would I want it to do? So the, the more prepared you are for what you want it to do, the less of a surprise it is when it turns up and it's doing the things that you wanted it to do. So to me, that's kind of the key takeaway for everybody is it is coming... Just like mobile phones are here, you need to start thinking about how you want to take advantage of it because it's not going away.
1: Alright, Well, look forward to hearing you're um, on your a panel first and then speaking a bit later today. Yep. So all the best with that, Thank enjoy you. the last Victorian Health Week.
10: Yeah, well it's, it's lovely and sunny here, but um, it hasn't been in New Zealand so it's always good to come to Australia and get some sun.
1: Yeah, and I've come down from the sunny coast and I'm like in my puffer jacket thinking <laughs> it's quite cool. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for your time today, John, and we'll um, see you around. Yeah, thanks.
0: Hey, thanks for sticking around to the end of this episode. If you made it this far, you're the perfect person that I want to hear from. Our THT Plus audience survey is now open until the end of June, and I personally read every submission. In fact, if you leave a comment in the survey that you heard this promotion in a podcast episode, I promise I'll reply directly to you by email with a personal note of thanks. And I'll even buy your coffee next time I see you in person. It's pretty easy. Just go to talkinghealthtech.com slash survey and have your say.